This episode of Making a Monster is brought to you by The Book of Extinction, extinct animals resurrected for the world's greatest role-playing game. You guys are doing specific monsters from older... It's not specific monsters. It's, uh, it's <laughs> cheats. It is, it oh, is oh different... yeah, cheeses. 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 <laughs> I don't know if that's what you call it. Uh, it's going to be what I call it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's way better. Because a lot of the ways in which the game has created its own lore, its own D&D cryptids, started back in 3rd edition and 3.5. And 5th edition stands at the top of this teetering tower of nonsense that is 50 years old and has given rise to a, a huge variety of things that are just in the game now and have names and wander about the world of D&D in the same way that wandering monsters roam around dungeons. So That peasant railgun. Something like the Quantum Ogre. I loathe the Arrow of Destruction. The False Hydra. Uh, wireless Troll. Larry the Kung <laughs> Fu Kraken. I hate this one so, so much. <laughs> Welcome to Making a Monster, the bite-sized podcast where we look at the monsters in Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop RPGs and discover how they work, why they work, and what they mean. For these episodes, I've assembled a crack team of D&D podcasters from all over the world to track down monsters born of the system itself. I'm Jeremy Vine. I'm a professional dungeon master. My name is Jared Jehoda, and you can find me on any podcast platform under Mid-Level Adventurers. I'm Danilo, the host, producer, editor of Thinking Critically, a D&D discussion podcast where we take a single word or topic and discuss what it means in the D&D and wider TTRPG framework. Hello, I'm Rebecca. And I'm Steven. And we are from a House of Us Broadcasting, Eberron, a Chronicle of Echoes podcast. So let's talk cheese. We'll move on. Let's keep I, going. <laughs> yeah, because I want to talk about one thing that I know has changed from older editions to this edition are the exact mechanics of the way portable holes and bags of holding work. And it's still bad putting them together. And I think it used to be worse. So the idea is that there are dimensional spaces like a bag of holding. The bag you can just put as much stuff or a lot of stuff into. And also things like a portable hole, which is a hole that you can put in the ground. Very much Bugs Bunny, where you can just kind of draw a hole in the ground (laughs) and then jump in it and then pull the hole above you so you're hidden. Another one is rope trick, which is actually a spell where you basically just drop a rope and you climb up the rope and you hide in a little cabin at the top and the only thing and then you can pull the rope up after you so no one knows you're in there <laughs> uh there's a really interesting i think in eberron where they've got these the the electric trains and all of the first class cabins are actually these extra dimensional spaces so you can have these gorgeous rooms and libraries while you're still traveling on the train but there is a problem when these things start to interact because I guess two negatives in a positive world kind of thing. It's like if you really force these things together, there's going to be a bit of blowback. A lot of people wonder what happens if you put a portable hole into a bag of holding. And previous editions, I believe that it was something very nasty. So someone of a mechanical bent has devised a way in which we can use this particular interaction to create a weapon of mass destruction for very little cost. I don't know if I sent you the diagram that I found, but I feel like this isn't the only... (laughs) When was the first time you saw this? Probably about 10 years ago or so. (laughs) 
you know, like a lot of these things, they originated in someone's home game in a thought experiment somewhere. And it wasn't until really like the late 90s or early thousands where the internet became popular and there were message boards and websites and forums where people could start talking about and really refining these ideas. And so the D&D forums lit up with all of these things and the arrowhead of mass destruction is one of them. It's this idea where you roll up a portable hole and put it in a like special compactor thing right in front of a bag of holding. And when the arrowhead impacts, the portable hole gets shoved into the bag of holding and detonates a massive explosion. Because in older editions, that's what happened when two interplanar devices tried to swallow one another. It was just too much for the universe. And so massive explosion occurred, killing everything and anything, destroying castles and walls and all this nonsense. The interaction between these two extra planar items causes a rupture in space-time and tears the fabric of reality apart and things go flying and this, that, and the other. So you're, you're turning an otherwise 1D6 arrow into a 10-foot sphere of delete the terrain here, please. <laughs> <laughs> in 5th edition, it's narrowed down so that if two extra planar openings or bags or holes or whatever go into one another they just destroy themselves and spit out everything that was in them which is a much more like non-lethal version <laughs> i loathe the arrow of destruction which is a dungeon master i just call garbage i just don't allow anything like that it's the equivalent of creating a mini black hole gun and going yeah i'm gonna go down to the shops and rob a bank with the <laughs> mini black hole gun and so that's probably not a good idea uh, just to have in general. So I generally just say it doesn't doesn't work. But it was this weapon of mass destruction that players figured out, hey, I can do that pretty easily. I can get these things together. And it, it's an interesting idea. Um, it's certainly a, <laughs> a nuclear option. The first time I ever saw this particular idea, I was all aboard. I was in it. I was like, if you can find those things and if you can craft that arrow without killing yourself <laughs> you can use that arrow because <laughs> if you think about it you're working with two highly volatile well they're not volatile they are perfectly safe to use by themselves but the closer they get to one another and they gotta be pretty close if you're gonna put them into an arrowhead <laughs> then if you can figure that out and in such a way where not only can you manufacture it but carry it safely <laughs> Like, I'm like, if it was me and someone had done that, they would be like, we've made this thing. I'm like, okay, you have successfully made this thing. How are you transporting it? I'm just going <laughs> to put it in my quiver. Are you now? Are you now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me know how that works the next time somebody kicks you in the backside <laughs> or you get smacked by a falling rock. Cause, uh, I don't think that <laughs> if that arrowhead is designed to crumple, it's designed to crumple. <laughs> but Hey, you live your life, man. See, this is just, it, it is it is making a game more complex for the sake <laughs> of screwing over your players. Which is why we have the house rule. That it doesn't work. That it doesn't so work. So I think that I dealt with players who tried to use this and they did not like my answer, which my answer was that it's a myth, that it is an absolute myth that you can't oh, do that. Yeah. And it is like Pop Rocks and <laughs> Pop Rocks and Coke. 
Everyone knows it's a myth, but no one's willing to do it. No one really wants to do the Pop Rocks and Coke just in case it is going to cause problems. <laughs> right. And, even if it doesn't kill you, it's going to be a bad time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be uncomfortable. And, you know, the because I think they were trying to have an unseen servant deliver it to it. Yeah. Instead ah! of the arrow, the arrow is much more concise and. I, I think we need more trick arrows like that, you know, like world ending WMD arrows in yeah. D and D just need to be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's continue let's to add that. more weapons of mass destruction to our games. Listen, I'm learning from the morning. All right. I <laughs> morning causing arrows. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Someone did it. And now we have the Mornland. <laughs> uh, we, we had a game that took place in a pocket universe and we said that's how we ended up there is that we had put a bag of holding into a portable <laughs> hole and ended up there. And I, I think that if your players are headed that route, have someone else step in like, <laughs> OK, you, you guys are messing with time and space. The inevitables of time and space three five. Go ahead. Just whip them out. Mm-hmm. Have them show up and be like, you guys are trying to break space and time. Marts no, and stop Marts. it. Oh, yeah. Would I allow it? Uh, yes but with probably so many strings that it would turn off the, the player. The one example I saw of the mechanism, it was quite an involved mechanism. You know, you've got a pin that holds something in place that has to shatter on impact. And obviously with any of these kind of payload type weapons, you have to be able to set it up and arm it essentially beforehand, but still have the strength within it to withstand the torque and the pressures of being flung out of bow. I would be like, okay, well, A, you need an artificer or maybe a wizard and they need a lot of time and you'll need some resources <laughs> and probably some failed experiments and the cost to cover oh you've torn a 10 foot hole in your lab the, the <laughs> landlord's probably not super stoked about i feel that dungeon masters particularly don't like it because you create this wonderful monster that they're gonna you're gonna um have against the party for a long time and they shoot him with one arrow and suddenly well now there's a power vacuum as well as the vacuum of space that the creature's just been sucked into <laughs> yeah and nature abhors both yeah i wonder if this is the kind of thing that you could build an entire adventure around like the creation of the arrow of total destruction i would say and, you could uh, probably build certainly a module around it i probably wouldn't make it an arrow of destruction i make it like a ballista like a massive, mm. or even a catapult that a king is trying to build, like it becomes the nuclear deterrent. It's like, if I have this, no one will come against me. But also, I've got it now. I've got to go out and and use it against people and take over places. But the, for the adventurers, like at the adventurer level, they have to assemble the pieces. They have to mm. go out and find a certain bag of holding that will work for it. They have to find a certain portable hole. They have to find the right things, like the right arrow that will stand up to just the friction of it, using it in the first place. Um, and this this idea that each level, each little adventure is getting another aspect of this weapon. And eventually, once you have the weapon, you're unstoppable. And that's where the campaign ends. So that's where the adventure's over. You've got the thing now. It doesn't matter whether you can use it or not because you now have it. So just the just getting there is the journey. Yeah. It's almost like the Rod of Seven Parts, yeah. except that instead of creating something out of the lore of the world, we've created something out of like the 
you know, the lore of the world. If you know yeah, what I it's mean. like, it's just suddenly become a really meta, meta idea for it. It's like <laughs> out of the rules of the world, we have created a, an artifact rather than creating the, the artifact first and bringing up rules for it. So yeah, I, I definitely would consider it certainly. And I feel that this is something that is built into the game, that there are these artifacts, these weapons that are too powerful to exist, these magical swords that can take over your mind, books of ultimate evil, rings that can rule the world, one ring to rule them all, that kind of thing. Yep. This is built into the game. I feel that what players want is them on a regular basis. Uh, rather than remembering that these this ultimate power will eventually ultimately corrupt you and you don't want that part of the story you just want to, to get to it you just want to achieve the yeah. ultimate power <laughs> yeah because then you have this game where you have to manage massive international politics mm. and and i don't know like i i i know if that were my game i'd be like all right you, you <laughs> No. <laughs> See, I feel it feels somewhat unsatisfying at that point. I think at a certain level, if you've got this arrow, like nothing can stop you, depending how many of the arrows you have. If three dragons come against you, you can't shoot all of them with one arrow. And it does become, uh, yeah. well, they the creatures don't want to be hit with a nuke. They want to fight back, so they're gonna start doing preemptive strikes against you. And I think that a lot of the time, particularly fifth edition, people tend to forget that you're only heroes because you're the main characters. <laughs> the, the monsters know what they're doing. The monsters don't want to die and they will come after you. If, if they learn that you have something like this, people will try to take it from you. And using it doesn't mean that they can't take it from you. Hmm. Yeah, there's no shortcut to, uh, to invincibility. Yeah, and also, again, mm. that if you can make it, so can other people. That when um, oh yeah now you have to make it first yeah now the bandit lord has it and uh, starts shooting <laughs> you with it and it's a lot less fun for for player characters <laughs> when suddenly your exploit is used against you especially if the bandit lord is everywhere yeah uh, <laughs> everyone's got a mini vortex grenade that just sucks you into the warp uh, it's it's not fun for most people. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is us sort of encountering the limits, items being, numbers being abstracted and physics being not necessarily directly mapped over the real world. Because this isn't a game that's designed for realism, it's designed for balance. So one of the things that they, and I always like to think of the bag of holding is, this is an item that enables us to ignore encumbrance rules so that we cannot spend 30 minutes of our weekly session figuring counting. out right <laughs> you know counting pounds and so then you know that's how the bag of holding got here and then we started to ask a lot of questions about extra dimensional spaces and i think what happens when you put them together is us throwing up our hands and saying all right this is no longer helpful so they explode <laughs> Well, so we streamlined that process in, in my games when I was running them by saying, all right, we won't do that. And in exchange, you guys have a coin purse of infinite holding. Oh. The coin purse can only take coins. They have to be <laughs> a printed denomination that exists within the world. And that is the only thing that can go in there. And it will automatically exchange it based on currency. And, and that was oh, lovely. all yeah, that, that way I could make it easy to not have to deal with all of that. Because again, I hate math. I'm not here for math. I'm here for storytelling. And as soon as math gets in the way, I'm not going to enjoy it. 
I ignore encumbrance rules. <laughs> my first DM did not. My first DM was big on encumbrance rules, and I, as a thief, had to deal with that. Like, I was a rogue. Oh, yeah. And I had to sneak out a treasure chest full of stuff by being like, uh-huh. no, it's a, it's a suit of heavy armor, guys. I don't know what you want. It's heavy armor in there. <laughs> Will you carry it out for me? I'm too weak to physically carry out this treasure. Please <laughs> take it for me. Gosh, yeah. Darn. I mean, that would prevent your rogues from putting... Uh, you know, a massive oil painted portrait of great value into their pocket and then sneaking out the window. So, you know, yeah. there's a, <laughs> that is also true. Yeah. There's a level true. at which some of this is useful. And I think we've gotten the We've gotten the arrowhead of total destruction at the limit of which, you know, by, by taking some of these quality of life improvements and then asking the kinds of questions they were never meant to withstand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that everyone wanted the game to be as streamlined as possible and not have problems, and then we had to push the envelope. Well, I mean, but We're that's the natural dumb. thing when it comes to a lot of a lot of D and D is people go, but but what if I did this? <laughs> Which is the brilliant part about D and D is that people can go, but but what if I, but what if I. <laughs> put a bunch of swords in my bag of holding which would break a rift in the bag of holding but I knew exactly where in the astral plane my bag of holding would rift to and I put a portal on the <laughs> other side and all of those swords would go shooting out of the portal and into the dragon so yeah that's you're welcome new cheese happy birthday uh- This episode of Making a Monster is brought to you by The Book of Extinction, a bestiary of extinct animals resurrected for the world's greatest role-playing game. Inside are the stranger-than-fiction true stories of animals now completely gone from the world, alongside game statistics as fantasy monsters. The first three of those monsters are available now. You can pay what you want for them, and every penny will support endangered species and habitat preservation through the Center for Biological Diversity. Learn more at scintilla.studio slash extinction. That's S-C-I-N-T-I-L-L-A dot studio slash extinction. The idea here is the wireless troll. And this one only works because we have D&D's picture of trolls as almost fungus people. Yeah. Yeah, I feel instead of a troll, probably a better example is Wolverine. Um, going oh, into yeah. going, or maybe even Deadpool. That's a, another good example. This idea that no matter how severe the injury, eventually you'll be regenerating from a certain point. Yeah. So the idea is that eventually, somehow, your party kills a troll. You then take the troll and chop it up into exactly equal pieces. <laughs> Precision is important. <laughs> yeah. Because the way that in some. Uh, fantasy settings trolls work is they regenerate from the largest leftover piece and the (laughs) idea of the wireless troll is essentially that trolls regenerate a lot unless they take fire acid damage as a, a fun aside they believe this is because the troll god will eat you when you die if you have been burned because you're ready to cook or if you've already been half digested uh, so he, he's oh, fly with that. Oh, oh. Uh, and that's why trolls believe <laughs> that they are only vulnerable for these things because otherwise they grow back. They're okay. And this idea that if you are on a, on a journey, uh, you cut off 
a finger or a hand or something of the troll. And it will grow the hand back. So by cutting them all up into like one inch cubes or whatever, which how anyone would know to do this is a like a really high nature check in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) But, and then you like leave pieces or leave a piece with like someone you really like to let them know. Or maybe you have multiple pieces that you leave and you like from different trolls and you like tag them all. So, you know, which troll goes to which person, right? The idea being that if they ever need you and they're in dire straits, they just cut up their small piece of troll, which then your piece of troll begins regenerating. And because it's growing bigger, you realize it. And you're like, oh, Bob needs us back in Bobtown. <laughs> so you can go back to Bobtown. So it's like this, it's a like a more involved and less efficient way of like the sending spell. <laughs> But you carry that that troll hand with you, that stumpy hand, and keep it in a bag. And if your followers need to get a message to you urgently, what they can do is tell the troll this, because you've got them captured, apparently, if you've been able to cut off the hand. They kill the troll and cut them into tiny, tiny little bits. And then the hand that you have of the troll is the largest piece of the troll. So that's what regenerates. (laughs) That's what grows the troll again. And now it can tell you the message. (laughs) and i can see that working like i like that idea of honestly wolverine being able to do that (laughs) um like you gotta have a certain amount of body left and it's like great that's that's the bit that uh i mean even um going to doctor who i mean i feel that's something that happened in the david tennant run that a hand got chopped off oh yeah that was a whole deal yeah grow a new doctor from just a hand And it's the kind of the same idea that at what level does the the memory get maintained? As a dungeon master, it is so ripe for abuse. So ripe for (laughs) abuse that the fact that you're keeping a captive troll, I mean, this is where the ethical concerns start to to come up for me. Like, where do you draw the line of... Trolls are trolls are kind of evil for the most part, but not necessarily. It's a very D and D thing because I don't think trolls always have this regenerative ability in in mythos in the folklore that we have in our world. The trolls are the three billy goats gruff. I, I hide under bridges and I attack people. Um, I mean, if you look at Discworld, which I usually do, trolls are not even flesh and blood. They are stone, and they're just super tough. They're not regenerative. You can damage them with a pickaxe but uh you're not going to be able to like patch it back up with plaster later on so i think it's hilarious as hell uh, <laughs> and really ingenious in a way but it's built entirely off of meta knowledge you know hmm. um, yeah break that down for me so the meta knowledge being that like oh well trolls regenerate from the largest pieces in fantasy setting xyz right sure. that's the meta knowledge if you want your ranger to be able to figure that out, well, they are going to have to have whatever creature type trolls are in your setting as their favorite enemy. In like 5e, I think they are giants by default. Yeah, they are some they are this weird sort of fungal variant of giant. Yeah. So your favorite enemy would have to be giants, number one. Number two, <laughs> you have to be proficient in nature. And number three, you would have to roll like a 30 nature check to figure this out right (laughs) which is possible but then i would require like a 30 survival check and five days to chop it up into all these little pieces what are you gonna do with the rest of the pieces because if any piece gets 
cut up, damaged, eaten by a bird, then <laughs> other then another piece will start growing. So you have to do that. Oh, well, you just burn all the other pieces. Like, okay, maybe that's possible. But if you bury them, maybe they all like just stick back together and then you get a mutated troll and your pieces are inert anyway. So Oish. it's a fun idea. And there's ways to like really mess with them if they want to put the time into it. Um, so I really like the idea. It's so <laughs> creative. But also I want them to try, but I also don't want them to succeed. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so here's my issue with that. At what uh, at what point at what point does the finger of the troll not count anymore as part of the troll? Because I would say, <laughs> for me, gosh, I love this. I don't. I, I, this, I, is, this is. I would nightmares say for me, for man. me, either a once the troll regrows his finger, it doesn't work anymore. Or B, that trolls are like earthworms and the finger once far enough away from the original troll will just start regenerating anyway. <laughs> and um, at what point does it become you? It's a little bit of Theseus's boat as well. It's like, which one is the, is the you? Oh, the ship of Theseus, I should say. Like in the example, it's they start growing from the finger, which, you know, they, which implies they kind of have to regenerate a brain and at which point is it the same troll or is it a different troll and do they retain oh, the yeah. knowledge and the memories and surely they have a brain because they're humanoid so you would imagine their brain is in not in their fingertip which is where memories are stored as far as we know and i think it's broadly applicable to 99.9 percent .9 of humanoids maybe that's what i would argue actually now i've i've thought it out and, and spoken out maybe in my world the troll would regenerate at the, the fingertip but just be like Ah, why have you brought me into this world and just be like, this is a horrible experience and I am pissed and I know nothing about anything because I'm essentially a new troll. Uh, which would be yeah. hilarious. I'd love to play that, like a, a troll being born and they're eagerly waiting their message for it just to be like in it's agony. I'm just angry at being born in such a horrible manner. And... I love the idea of a wireless troll, of sending messages. It's like, I feel this <laughs> probably works in an evil campaign. It's like, if you <laughs> if you want to show your players that somebody is a really bad guy, that is what you have them do. You have them send, like, they just send a hand and then suddenly an entire troll pops out of it and goes, I've got a message for you. What, what on earth is going on here? And now they've got to fight a troll too, so there becomes. Oh the... yeah, of course, naturally. That's a good way to do the quantum ogre as well. You just have them show up with like a little troll head that suddenly pops up, and you've got a full troll coming out of it. Yeah, um, I call it the kick the dog moment. Yeah. Like, in the same way that the hero has to save the cat, the villain has to kick the puppy, mm. and uh, this would be a great way. Like, there's always that thing that villains do to let them know it's okay to hate them. Yeah, cross Usually it's their heart on their lackeys. Crossing that moral event horizon. It's like, how could you be mean to that person? We thought you were a good <laughs> bad guy, but you're actually just full evil. Whereas I, I like to have the, the pet the dog moment, uh, which is uh, not basically the opposite, where you have the villain do something nice and show that they do have honor in certain regards, just their beliefs are more important than the rest of the world. I would probably have it as like a big bad wizard type character who has 
essentially little jars filled with bits of trolls from all of his lieutenants. Like that's how you became a lieutenant for him, right? Like you had to go out and slay a troll and dice it up. And like, you don't know why he doesn't (laughs) tell you until afterwards. And he's like, all right, you're a lieutenant. Here's your bit of troll. This is what you do with it. And this is what I do with it. And if it ever starts growing, you better report here on the double with all your (laughs) armies or whatever it is. And so like all, and maybe that's the adventuring hook. Every time they defeat one of the lieutenants, they find like this glass vial that just has like a one inch cube of rotting flesh in it for no reason. And eventually they identify that it's a troll and then they learn that it's like, Oh, they're all from different trolls. And you know, so it's like this adventure hook, like who is doing this and why? (laughs) Yeah. This is messed up. We're going (laughs) to, yeah. I don't know who's doing this, but they got some issues. They need a counselor. (laughs) Meanwhile, like troll wizard here in the back is like, yes, yes. Come to my plans. Oh, man. Can I put you Troll know. Wizard on the list? Because I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like Grushek, the Troll Wizard, who has like <laughs> become the predominant troll in his area because he's just killed all the other trolls to use them as early warning triggers or whatever. Oh, man. I like this idea. I'm glad we've <laughs> talked about this. I'm going to use this. <laughs> if this becomes anything, like if you ever write that out, let me know. I will play test the heck out of it. I love it. And I'm yeah. just <laughs> so many of these are, are better off in the DM's toolbox. No, and in 5e specifically, player characters are super powerful. So why would you give them something like that? <laughs> Leave that as like a bad guy tool. <laughs> give the bad guy an edge, you know? Yeah. And talking of like morally ambiguous villains, um, who do you have to be to to even <laughs> to conceive of this and then you know, muscle through and actually do it. Uh, I think you have to have been picked on in the playground a lot and have <laughs> a uh, very vengeful sense of justice. <laughs> this, out of everything we've discussed, this is the most plausible and the most grounded, I think, as you put it, because it is, apart from one very literal rules as written utilization of the rules, is otherwise completely mundane um the only caveats would be this again it's always it's always a it's because of the implication for the always sunny fans out there uh mm. with me it's <laughs> it, you know were my players to do this then there might be some questions around like kind of the, the grim reality of what they are attempting to do and any witnesses and, and so on and so on. Otherwise, no, it, it you know, if it were a, a, a big bad evil guy, then yeah, it's it, it's plausible. I think what I'll, what I'll settle on is it's plausible but unlikely for various reasons. <laughs> One being is that I hope my player characters wouldn't get there because <laughs> not that they all have to be heroes, but even pushing it, this is p- pushing the definition of heroics. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly... My specific big bad would not resort to something as beneath him as as what this is. Um, And I would like to think that many other big bads would have more sophisticated means of long range (laughs) communique uh, that doesn't revolve (laughs) harrowing experience, even for the most gruesome of goblins. (laughs) 
Can we call this counter cheese? <laughs> like I see your cheese and I raise you more cheese. I raise... <laughs> here is stinkier cheese. Steve's over here grimacing. I don't. At me. I don't like it. Like three five had clones as well. Like there was a clone spell in the psionics, mm-hmm. and so you could actually make clones of people. And that all just I can't, man. I can't. My brain. My brain refuses to be involved in any of that. It's it's a nightmare. It is a logistical nightmare. What if you're all the same exact size, all of the cubes, same exact size. What happens then? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Could you cube something all the the exact same size? Though, let's be real. Is, isn't that feasible? Yeah. So I, I I imagine I could get two cubes out of it, two cubes <laughs> the exact same size, and then burn the rest of it. Right. So now I have two speaking. two fingers exact same size, both. Yeah. Like here here's where we're at. <laughs> and now, now what happens? I don't want to like, yeah, no, no, this is no, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, it's just, it doesn't work. That's uh, not the way trolls work. You guys are wrong on so many levels. You've kept a troll captive. Your cheese scientists were too busy wondering whether they could to ask whether they should. <laughs> Thanks for listening to making a monster. If this episode has entertained or enlightened you in any way, please share it with the people who play D&D with you. Your recommendation will go a long way to helping people trust me with their time and attention, and it's a real gift to me and the creators I feature. You can also leave me a like or a five-star review on Spotify, iTunes, or your podcast player of choice. It's a small thing, but it really does help new listeners discover the show. If you really like what I'm doing, you can support me through the Book of Extinction a project I'm creating with Mage Hand Press that enables D&D players to make a real difference in the climate crisis and rapidly accelerating mass extinction by telling the stories of the animals that we have already lost. There are already five episodes of Making a Monster about the creatures in that book, so set this podcast feed to newest first and take a journey with me into a world wilder and more fascinating than you probably thought it could be. Special thanks to my collaborators on these Exploit Monsters episodes. I'm Jeremy Vine. I'm a professional dungeon master. You can find me on social media on Twitter at Talumin, T-A-L-U-M-I-N, or you can listen to my podcasts. Tell me about your D&D character, which is on SoundCloud, or D&D and TV, which is on Podbean. My name is Jared Jehoda, and you can find me on any podcast platform under Mid-Level Adventurers. I'm one half of the creative team. Matt is the other half. Or you can catch Matt and I on Newly Forged, which is our Twitch stream D&D game. Uh, It's a homebrew game set in a post-apocalyptic magical world. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, at MidLVLAdventure to keep updated. And we've recently started releasing our podcast episodes on YouTube as well. I'm Danilo, the host, producer, and editor of Thinking Critically, a D&D discussion podcast where we take a single word or topic and discuss what it means in the D&D and wider TTRPG framework. That has been going on now for almost 65 episodes and a year and a bit weekly drops everything from your esoteric left field weird things that you would never attribute to D&D all the way to encounters and experience and much more obvious topics including soft skills such as friendship 
and social and meta things such as podcasts, which was a weird self <laughs> navel gazing one to record. <laughs> Hello, I'm Rebecca. And I'm Stephen. And we are from a House Civis Broadcasting. Eberron, a Chronicle of Echoes podcast. It's a very different kind of podcast. We're a little bit scripted, a little bit improv, and a whole lot of fun. So we hope that you'll stop in and check us out and find out what it's like when D&D meets radio. We'll be back next week. See you then.